The following sermon is from Evangel Temple Youth Ministries. For more information about how you can get involved, please visit etchurch.org forward slash youth. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? For those of you who have your Bibles on you, I'd like you to turn to Mark 16. It's the last chapter of Mark, and we are going to be diving into the first eight verses. So I can go ahead and read out loud. You guys don't have to read out loud because I know you guys can. I'm pretty sure you guys can. But it says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. They said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So I decided to start off this sermon by diving into some of these lyrics that I mentioned beforehand. That's a song, for those of you who don't know, it's called I Can Only Imagine. And I want to dive into everything that the presence of Christ just might entail. And we see here that at this moment of the resurrection, at this wondrous event, that these women weren't even in direct contact of the power of God. They only saw kind of the effects of it by means of the resurrection. But I find it amazing that they're so oddly confused as to what on earth is happening. And I want to speak to this idea of the identity of Christ that I thought would be fitting to talk about for this, the end of this series because we're going through the book of Mark and we're talking about the identity of Christ. And I think the number one way that we can be able to see this from the book of Mark, for this is the way it ends, is Christ is mysterious and powerful, more so than we can ever imagine. You know, it's such a magnificent concept, if I'm being completely honest. But, you know, whenever I dove into this verse myself, whenever Isaac, you know, told me that for the last part of the series, he wanted me to speak on this specific passage, I was a little bit confused. And to be honest, I was even getting more confused as I was trying to figure out the implications of how to write a sermon on this passage. Because, all right, think about the first seven verses. It's a traditional resurrection story. The women are coming to the tomb. They brought spices with them so that way they can anoint Jesus. They're asking themselves, who's going to roll away the stone of the tomb? 
They get there. The stone is rolled away. They go inside. There's an angel sitting there, and he says, you're looking for Jesus? He ain't here. He's risen. And he says, go to Galilee so that way you can minister to the disciples and Peter. Tell them that Jesus is going there to meet them. But then verse 8 does something very, very strange. It ends the gospel by saying that they left in fear and trembling and said nothing to anyone. And I think one of the first things that I had to learn somewhere along the way is that man cannot ever deny the presence of God. In fact, time and time again in the Old Testament, we seem to be almost warned of the even physical side effects that this has whenever we come in direct contact. You know, in in Numbers 12, it says that Moses is the only person that God has ever shown his complete and full form to in their life on earth. It says in Numbers 12, 6, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. And we see it again in 2 Samuel 6, where Uzzah, one of the priests at the time, was helping to transport the Ark of the Covenant, and it was in a wagon. One of the animals stumbled to a point that it was about to fall off. And this priest goes to reach out to so much as touch it to be able to steady it. He's killed instantly because the presence of God was so overwhelming in that moment. His body couldn't handle it. I want us to go back to the women. And I will admit that whenever I took a look at this passage and Mark, my first inclination was to say, yeah, the women were unfaithful. Like, you know, they were clearly told to do something and they didn't do it. But if you take a look at the other gospels, specifically Matthew and Luke, they account a pretty similar story. Except they don't include this part about them running away and not telling anybody. In fact, they say that they did go tell the the disciples without fear and that the disciples just didn't believe them. And that's kind of the word that we get for the women in these other stories. So why does it seem to be the case that Mark wanted to end his gospel this way? But the more and more I kind of sought the answer to this question over time, I kind of see that it wasn't all that strange that he ended it this way. Think about all these different stories that we've been listening to over the last multiple weeks when we're trying to figure out the identity of Christ. Take a look at the stories themselves. Take a look at how people are reacting along the way. Mark 1, the man is healed of an unclean spirit. And it says the people were amazed and filled with fear. Mark 2, whenever the paralytic is healed because his friends lowered him in from the ceiling, the last word is given to the people saying, we are amazed. How on earth is he able to do this? Mark 4, whenever Jesus is able to calm the wind and the waves that in a storm would have killed even an experienced sailor, they ask themselves, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And in Mark 5, the people are still filled with amazement whenever he's able to heal the ruler's daughter. And it happens over and over again throughout the Gospels that whenever we see this manifestation of God through this action of Jesus, people can't help but fear. Now back to the women again. Let's think about the faith that they had. Let's imagine the faith that they had. In the chapter before, it describes the fact that though the disciples had fled when Jesus was being put up on the cross, the women stayed. 
Mary Magdalene, Mary, Solomon, these women that had attended to Jesus for years, they stayed by his side. The beginning of this passage says that after two days, they had gone to see him and they bought spices so that way they might anoint him. Now, a little lesson in, I guess, chemistry, anatomy, and also meteorology. The climate during this time of the year in Israel would have been rather hot and humid. And so bodies decayed and they decayed fast. And so at the point of two days, a body would have decayed to a point that bringing spices wasn't exactly going to do anything to help. They clearly didn't come to be able to put spices out of some ritual purity. They came because they loved Jesus. Yet in this morning, in, in this time of sadness, they go to the tomb and almost as if they're like just asking the question of who will roll away the stone, it's answered and the stone is rolled away as they get there. And they go inside and they see this young man sitting there who says, Jesus of Nazareth, the man that you just saw brutally killed, he's alive. He's been raised from the dead. Now go. Go to his disciples and tell them that he's going to meet him over in Galilee. So, will they dance for Jesus? Will they sing hallelujah? So, will they be able to speak at all? Could they do anything in that moment except just simply recognize the power of God in that situation? C.S. Lewis says, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. And I believe that these women, even as the most callous possible atheists, trying to convert as many people away from Christianity as possible, no matter how much of a steel cage they have made their minds, I believe that even them in a moment so beautiful and as wondrous and amazing as the resurrection would not have been able to deny the power of God. And to those who are kind of wondering um, a little bit of a hint of what such a thing would be like, I want to give you a little bit of a lesson in human anatomy again. In our eyes, we have three different kinds of color receptors. And those colors that we're able to see in their primary forms are only red, blue, and green. And if you think about it, you look around this room and you see so many different colors, like yellow. How, how on earth did we get yellow by mixing those three colors together? I couldn't tell you. But we take a look at all these different colors that we've seen. We think about the many different sunsets that we've seen, the portraits that people have wanted to paint, the different views as we look over God's majesty. Some views and some artistic masterpieces that would almost bring grown men to their knees weeping because of their beauty. And all of that with three color receptors, able to see that kind of depth. Now there's this animal out there, it's called the mantis shrimp. And the mantis shrimp has this very interesting uh, thing that happens in its eyes. Instead of three color receptors, it has 12. So imagine just for a second that you were given the ability to see the world through the eyes of a mantis shrimp for five minutes. For five minutes, you can see the world through the eyes of a mantis shrimp. You can see the depth in the hues of colors that nobody in human history would have ever been able to see beforehand. 
Now you come back after five minutes to sing like you always have, as everybody else always has. And you try to calmly and rationally explain to me what on earth that's like. Or even more so, for those of you who are able to see color, try talking to a colorblind person and explain to them the feeling that you get whenever you see the color blue. You know, perhaps it's not that crazy to think that if we're not able to describe very rationally what it's like to see through the eyes of a mantis shrimp, that we would be able to recount very accurately what it's like to be in God's presence very well. And so like the title of that song that I mentioned rings so true, we can only imagine. You know, the wise King Solomon writes in Proverbs 10, 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so I think that whenever we label this action of these women as just completely unfaithful, I think that we almost end up starting to minimize the effects and the power that God's presence can have on us. The crucifixion tells the story beautifully of these women who stood by Jesus' side and the next chapter later are coming to mourn him. So instead, little thought experiment. I know I've put you guys through enough of this tonight, but I'm going to put you through another. Let's put ourselves in the place of those women. Instead of just trying to think about how unfaithful their actions were, put yourself in their place for a second. There's this man of God that you have been walking with and attending to for his three, three and a half years of ministry. And you have seen him do amazing things. And you've been able to see him speak with authority more so than these Pharisees who kind of seem to tell you that there's only one way to be able to serve God. Who these Pharisees who tell you, who seem to give you a lot more doom and gloom than joy of a message of a coming Savior. This man that through his miracles and through the authority that he's able to have of things, that it seems like in your life you get to see just a glimpse of hope. Every now and again, he feeds 5,000. He feeds 7,000. He saves people's lives. He brings them back from the dead. And you see these people that he has done nothing but serve his entire life. Turn him in. Turn him into these powers that be that just absolutely hate him. And these people that probably had a chance to witness the power of God that a week earlier were shouting, shouting Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, now calling for him to be crucified. A death that to this day nobody has been able to replicate in terms of pain, in terms of torture. That's your Lord up there. It's the man that you served for three years. He's been lashed over and over and over again with a very, very, very deadly whip. Odds are some of his bones are showing. And he's bleeding out on that cross. And you can see him almost have to gasp for air that this man whose breath would give life to people, now it seems that he is just hanging on by a couple as he struggles 
with every bit of sinew and muscle that seemed to be tearing as he's just pulling himself up to get one more breath. The earth darkens for three hours, but I can guarantee you for the women that their souls were darker for much longer. And so they mourn for days to a point that they can't even bring themselves to come to the grave until two days later. Everything had been said and done. Possibly to some of the disciples, it could have seemed like he was just another man who seemed to have a good message and became a martyr. But that was the end of the story. But you come to the tomb still. Why? Because you love him. You love him still. You understand what unconditional love is because the man that you're going to visit was the man that taught you that. experience is only just echoed by the previous experience that we see in Mark. All these people desperately coming forward, almost as if in these stories that we were able to see a reflection of us, desperately crying out in our flesh, how about me? Do you see me, God? I hurt too, just like them. Some days I feel like the leper that nobody would touch. Some days I'm dead for days until you call me to come out of that tomb. But they get there. And expecting to be in a series of mourning and sadness, they met with just confusion at first. The stone is rolled away. And they go in and the body's not there. And at first their thoughts must have been somebody took his body. We don't even get to mourn properly until this angel, almost as if like this shocking idea of being in water that's so boiling that it would make your skin come off. You are instantly thrown into the Arctic Ocean. That amount of level of shock whenever you hear. It's not that he's just not here. He's alive. And guess what? He did this thing that he does. Even still, throughout all of his life, Jesus worked so counterculturally to what everybody would have expected. He was the one who stood between the Pharisees and the woman as they were getting ready to stone her because she was accused of adultery. And he was the one that was willing to stand up and say, you who is without sin, throw the first stone. He worked so counterculturally again. And this message is given to them. He's not dead, but he's living. And women, these people that in this time weren't even trusted as reliable witnesses in a court of law are given the world's greatest news and are the first ones to hear the world's greatest commission. Now I want those of you who are able to honestly kind of picture yourselves in those shoes to be able to tell me like your own rational, like, you know, reactions, explanations as to what's going on, you know, maybe break out some big theological terms like uh, he is the resurrected kerygma of our spirit that we're meant to live in life with daily. And listen, he was dead. I saw him die. And it's not that he's just not here. He's resurrected. All of the promises, everything that he said is proven to be true. 
Now, I believe that Mark kind of left his writing a little bit open-ended for another reason. I think that we're supposed to kind of dive in to what these women were experiencing. I think that the book of Mark sets us up to be in such an empathetic relationship to every single person who has been healed, who has had some kind of miracle done for them, that by the time we get here, it's supposed to end abruptly. We're supposed to ask ourselves the question, what now? Martha Spong, a wonderful evangelist, was speaking on this one day about the discomfort that that almost leaves you in. And she says, it reminds us that even when it's hard to believe, there's no good news unless someone shares it. Now, today I've gone about recounting for you the greatest aspect of the greatest story ever told. And I have to say that it beckons for a response. I have to. I can't pretend it doesn't. And I think that this response goes hand in hand with the fact that Jesus tells us that he sends a comforter after him. And that comforter is the Holy Spirit. And that comforter is somebody who's supposed to also enlighten and empower us just even a small number of us prayed that this entire room could feel a similar fear, amazement, and awe. And I can almost feel myself in your shoes whenever I say that word fear. Because fear has these connotations of, well, he, if he's such a loving God, then why on earth do I have to fear him? You know, what, what if it's going to be something that's too much for me? Or Sam, I have no intention of being in such a presence that's so fearful. And I want us to go into a time of reflection that's going to kind of be honest about where we're at. Truthfully, for anybody in this room, I don't, I'm not particularly worried whether you've been a Christian your entire life. You know, you've been through JBQ, TBQ, or if you're somebody who this is your first night or you've never exactly had an encounter with this God that these women seem to be trembling about. But I want to give you a good reason that you may be able to wrap your heads around as to why you should seek it out tonight. Because if it is the case, as Solomon tells us, that the, be that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then if we are able to encounter God, who granted is the thing in everywhere that's deserving of the most fear, but also loves us infinitely more and is on our side, and we're able to encounter him, and afterward he's able to give us his peace, then let me ask you, if you have encountered the thing that is deserving of the most fear in this entire universe... What's left to fear? What, what's left to fear? I mean, I, it's obviously a rhetorical question because there's nothing out there. 
And I want to console those who feel that you're almost like a little bit lost by this message. Or those of you who, you know, may not exactly understand because, you know, church is supposed to be this place where you're always given this almost charge to be able to change something. And granted, every single time that I preach, I always want to go into it with a mentality of saying that whenever you come in and you hear the word of God, I want you to walk out of those doors different than when you came in. And I still do firmly believe that. Except I think tonight it's going to be a matter of instead of starting with our actions and hoping that the inside is hopefully going to reflect that. Because the thing is, I don't think that that's what we're supposed to do. In fact, the Pharisees are criticized for that exact same thing. They're called whitewashed tombs because on the outside, they look gorgeous. They look pristine. But on the inside, it's just decay and rotting and dead. I'm not asking for action. Tonight, more than any other night, I believe that God is beckoning for us for identity. Something that starts inside first. And you know the great thing? Is that in this time of reflection, you can go to a leader, you can not go to a leader. You can come here to the altar, you can go back there. I just pray more than anything that you experience him. I don't have to see what happens on the inside. And if you're worried about God seeing what's on the inside, I can guarantee you he already is. And more than anything, I know that he feels whatever sadness or sorrow or tragedy you feel. Because he sees it and probably understands it better than you do. And so it's not going to be about this idea of us having to scoop the bad stuff out or hold on to the good stuff or, you know, focus it immediately on our actions. Actions are important, don't get me wrong. Tonight, what would happen if we just peeled back the shell, we took off the mask? I think that even if just for a second, that if we say to God, God, I will make myself as open to you as I can. And the only thing I ask is that you reveal yourself to me in kind. And then maybe, perhaps as the women needed to respond to the event of the resurrection, we need to go through our own experience. Maybe if we're looking for any way to be able to face whatever fear is outside of those doors for you. I don't even know if for some of you, the fear is somewhere inside of these doors. I pray it's not, but even if it is, whatever that person, whatever that place, Whatever that event, whatever that situation is that seems to bring out this side of fear in you that you hate to see every single time. Perhaps a God that can raise from the dead can do the same for you. Perhaps instead of just scooping out what's on the inside, he calls you to come alive. Perhaps you're waiting inside of that tomb that Jesus was inside and the stone is rolled away now and all he's doing now is beckoning for you to come on out. Make yourself known to me and I'll make myself known to you.
And I should say before we go into a time of response that there is a bit of a warning that I would have. And it's that so many different times we compare the presence of God and the presence of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit to water. You hear it in so many different worship songs. It's crazy at this point. It's like a formula for getting a good worship song. Compare God to water and you're set. But I think there's a reason for that. And the reason is that water will go wherever you let it. It can fill in any crack. It can go anywhere inside or out and has the power to be destructive as a flood or as nourishing as a glass of it on a day that you're very dehydrated. I fully believe that he's a mysterious God whose power and whose limits we can not really begin to understand the beginning of. But I do know some things. I know he's on our side. I know he wants transformation. I know that if you feel death inside, he seems to take things that are dead and make them alive. You know, I think that's probably one of the biggest myths that you hear in Christianity is that God came to make bad people good. I don't think he came to make bad people good. I think he came to make the dead live. And the difference in that is so astronomical. So we're going to go into a few songs of reflection. I know I've been you know, saying that we're about to go into reflection, but this time I really mean it. So Father God, allow us to encounter you as the women at the tomb did. So many in your word did when they cried out in desperation for nothing but you. We hope you enjoyed the sermon. If you're not already a part of the ET family, we invite you to join us on Wednesday nights. For more information, visit etchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon.